who else is out here? I'm gonna throw my selfie. Think of all the sordid things that have probably happened. Can I just look? I've lived in this part of the world all my life. Who else is out here? Because there is a farm. Still the ragged lady guns dance their set. Cold and fresh. Who else is out here? Minnesota Midnight. I dive in. This is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. Welcome to issue one. I'm Alice. And I'm Jonathan, and we are super excited to share the pieces in this issue with you. When we put out our call for submissions, we had no idea what kind of a response we'd get, or if anyone would respond at all. So we're really pleased to be able to share pieces from 15 contributors in this issue. We've received a great variety of pieces, from poetry and conversations to field recordings, stories and sound art. We have pieces about adventures, walking, swimming, queer group trips, international travels. About relationships, fun times, sadness, love and companionship. And about fields, beaches, towns, cities, woods and highways. So a big thank you to all our contributors and to the people who helped circulate our call for submissions. And also to you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy it. Before we leave you to enjoy this issue, we need to do a little bit of housekeeping. But don't worry, it's not going to take long. You can find show notes for this issue on our website, queerouthere.com. You will find cover art by the wonderful Emma Charleston, a track list with short descriptions and timings, information about contributors, including social and web links, content notes, and a complete transcript of the issue. The pieces in Queer Art Here talk about many things related to being queer and the outdoors. This issue contains some swearing, descriptions of making art and sex, mentions of exercise as a weight loss strategy, internalized homophobia, being in physical danger from cold and wildlife, and transition-related concerns. Please see our show notes for specific timings or check the issue transcript if you need to avoid particular words or phrases. Again, both are available at queerouthere.com. If you still have concerns, you could ask a trusted friend to listen through this episode first to check for your specific triggers, or you could send us an email, queerouthere at gmail.com. And finally, this issue is quite long. Quite long for a radio show or a podcast, but not so long if you think of it more like a shorts program at a film festival. Every three or four pieces, we have a sweeper, a greeting from someone who will say their name, what they're doing, and you're listening to Queer Out Here. If you're looking for a place to pause for a break or an intermission, these might be good spots to do so. We hope you enjoy listening to Issue 1 as much as we've enjoyed putting it together. And now, it's time to take you as adventuring. Let's, Let's get, get queer, queer out here. here. Hi, I'm Gary, and here we are in the middle of the woods somewhere with the Rainbow Alliance walk, Bunkley walk, um, and we are on our five-mile walk, I think it is. Yeah. And uh, you're listening to Queer Out Here. Thanks, Gary. Right, so let's kick things off with a piece from Adele, who lives in Brighton in the UK. The piece is called A Walk Down My Path, and I love how it unfolds in real time, how we get to experience Adele's delight at her chance encounters with birds and animals, and her thoughts about the space as she moves through it. There's also something kind of bittersweet about it. Adele and her partner are tired of living in the city, but Adele can still find something wonderful, a snippet of nature, in the city. 
and she really connects to it and she loves that particular little piece of the natural world while craving something more and wanting to be somewhere else. Oh, there's a squirrel coming down. Oh, and a magpie. And another one. Oh, one for sorrow, two for joy, and a little, uh, I don't know, brown bird. So, hello, um, queer out there, queer OU there, here. This is my walk in nature. My name's Adele, and first of all, I'll let you listen. Now, I don't know quite what you're going to hear in this type of uh, phone machine recording. It's my girlfriend's, so I'm not very technological. But I'm guessing you might be able to hear the rugby and the road, as well as the nature. And that's what makes me quite sad about living in the city. Actually, what I hate about living in the city is that that is part of my nature and it always is when I'm out in nature so this path that I'm walking down oh a black black magpie just took a bit of bird off the seagull they're fighting over it oh and another seagull's come down <laughs> so this path I'm walking down it's at Hoverack which is the rugby place next to Hove Park and there's a path that's got trees down both sides of it one of the things that I love is it reminds me of a path that was near me uh, back up in the Midlands where I'm from in a really similar place to this, like a sports bit of grass and it had a path with trees along each side as well. So that gives me good memories there but also it's the closest place to my house where I can be next to some kind of nature so we don't have a garden, we just have a little bit of outdoor space, inverted commas, which is um, about two metres of concrete but it does have my girlfriend's little greenhouse thing on it that my mum bought uh, a couple of years ago for Christmas so I hope as well that you can hear the birds tweeting and the reason I wanted to share this part of nature is it is the place I go to the most regularly and I look at the trees Trees are one of my most favourite things ever. And as I look at these ones, I always, every time I walk down, try to look for a lesson in them. And this year they've taught me a lot about endurance, about persistence, about inner strength. Hello. Is that a crow that makes that noise? Um, so I've been going through a lot of transitions within my career this year. And, yeah, walking next to these trees, sometimes sitting next to them, touching them, touching the bark, just touching that piece of nature. It's been teaching me a lot of things. So now we are on December the 15th, I believe. It's quite cold. And the trees are bare. And 
they're teaching me, I think, today something about stripping down, bare roots, no need for excess, and mainly the trust, trying to trust that when you strip yourself bare in that way that the spring will come again at the time it's ready and you can't force spring. I'm getting towards about the last third of the path now and I'm going to leave you to listen to that until we get to the end because there's just a little something I want to share with you at the end of the path. So we're just coming up to the end of the path where it turns slightly and the trees go over the top and it becomes, to say wood-like would be an exaggeration, but that way inclined. And often at this point I'll take my shoes off and feel the earth. I don't fancy it today, I haven't been well, but um, I did do it a couple of weeks ago still, even in the cold, just to feel that different texture under my feet. And... <laughs> so now we're in this kind of bit that's more wood-like, not completely, but it is a bit. And there's some gorgeous twisted trees, which are my favourite. And I just look at this, and every time I look at it, I just, I just think of all the sordid things that have probably happened around these trees. This is Brighton. I think there's been a lot of deviant sexual activity going on. Um, and I, I just love that. I just love that kind of idea that nature would hold those stories. These trees have seen that. Um, and uh, it makes me very happy to be here. Looking around those. And I'm gonna take the microphone down. Hopefully you can hear the leaves on the floor or the autumn winter leaves. So December 
2017. The last thing I would like to add is my hopes for the future, which is to actually very soon be living within nature a little bit more. I'm absolutely thirsty for it. Last weekend, I went on a spontaneous six-hour walk on my own, uh, and it took me, I would say, until about two hours until I got to a place where I couldn't hear a road, and that makes me really sad. So I'm looking to the future to be somewhere out of this city life and to get in a place where I can follow an actual natural rhythm. Thank you very much. I like how cityscape and nature mix in Adelis's piece. It's a sonic landscape that most of us are familiar with, the place we go to the most regularly, as she said. But within the seemingly urban noise, there's detail that remind us of the outdoors, that makes us pause, think and meditate. Something that walking always does, no matter where we are. It brings clarity and an identity. This power of walking is explored by Jonathan in his piece entitled As I am walking, I am becoming. Here is what he said about it. Our thinking about how we bring ourselves into being, how bodies carry traces of the environment in which they are articulated, how we understand our embodiment identity from deeply within but also in the way the world reflects ourselves back to us. Are we a different kind of people depending on our environment? Does a person's identity change as the way they are reflected changes? I was also thinking that what that might mean for queer people. After all, despite some of our perceived risk from other humans outdoors, the trees don't care about the shapes of our bodies. The past doesn't care who we love or who we fuck.
I recorded the tracks used in this piece while on beaches, forests, paths, tracks and the bush in the UK, Norfolk, East Sussex and Wales, and in Australia, along the Snowy River. Many of these sounds were collected on the traditional lands of the Ngarrigo and especially of the Croatunkalung people of the Gunai Kurnai nation. I acknowledge your sovereignty, that your country was never ceded, and I pay my respect to your elders, past, present and emerging. Our next piece takes us further around the world to the Appalachian Trail, which stretches 3,500 kilometres, or 2,200 miles, through the eastern states of the USA, between Georgia and Maine. It's a popular trail with long-distance hikers, and there is plenty of great writing about it. Rahawa Hale, an Eritrean-American writer, has written a couple of excellent essays about hiking the AT in 2016, and I recommend that you look them up online. But we will be visiting the trail with Aubrey Drake, a white, queer, genderqueer, trans hiker and backpacker. Aubrey tells us that when they're not out in the woods, they do medical research, rock climb, read, crochet and cuddle their ginger tabby cat. But on the trail, things sometimes get a lot more adventurous. Oh, and before we start, 20s or teens in Fahrenheit is about 0 to minus 10 degrees Celsius. Hello everyone. My name is Aubrey. Um, on the trail, I go by Timex. And I just finished hiking the Appalachian Trail in sections in August, August 17th, 2017. Um, I started hiking on the Appalachian Trail in September of 2013. I started hiking by um, backpacking my way through the entirety of Massachusetts, which is 92 miles. Um, I had never backpacked a day before in my life. It was a bad life choice. Um, it took six months before I could feel all the parts of my feet again. I didn't have the right shoes. I didn't have the right gear. I did a 27 mile day. Um, the Appalachian Trail is typically about two miles an hour is pretty standard for people who are um, relatively experienced at backpacking. Uh, and uh, over the years, I, over four years, I went and hiked the rest of it, um, all the way from Maine down to Georgia. And it's kind of interesting because I started section hiking on the Appalachian Trail just about exactly one year after I began medical transition. I am um, transgender, I'm non-binary, I'm genderqueer, uh, and um, it has been kind of an interesting coming of age kind of adventure uh, for me. And it, it's been interesting to, to look at the person I was then and to see the person I am now. And some of that has definitely been impacted by my interactions on the trail. Um, and so I figured I would tell you all one of my favorite stories from the AT, uh, which was in November 2013. It was only the third time I'd gone hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Um, I was still very much a newbie hiker. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't die, which was great. Um, even though it was a possibility, uh, given the scenario. So, as I said, I hiked in September, 
did all of Massachusetts on the Appalachian Trail. It was intense, but I did it. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll like keep section hiking the Appalachian Trail. Cool, this is you know something to do. And so in October, I did a little day hike. And then in November, November, bad idea. I decided to do a four day, three night hike, backpacking trip in Southern Vermont in early November. And this might've been okay if things hadn't been relatively seasonal, there was a cold snap. Uh, and so the very first day I was heading out to the trail, it was in the 20s, maybe the teens when I woke up that morning and started driving and went and parked my car. Um, I'd gotten permission from the town, uh, the town offices to like park my car there. And I had my first hitchhiking experience and hitchhiked in uh, to get to the trailhead. Um, and the guy dropped me off and I started hiking and it was snowing. There was snow that I hadn't that hadn't I hadn't seen on radar on weather, and it didn't look like it was gonna snow, but it was. Um, there had also been an ice storm there that hadn't happened back in Connecticut or Massachusetts, and so everything was covered in ice, very unexpectedly for me. So, I did not have traction devices for my shoes. I was wearing every stitch of clothing I had with me and was still getting cold. My water bottles were freezing. It was snowing. And perhaps other people would have been sensible and turned around. Um, I've always I've always been stubborn and specifically I really hate changing my plans. But I kept pushing onward and I'd been sensible in that I had uh, borrowed a zero degree sleeping bag, which was probably the reason I didn't end up with any really negative consequences from this experience. So I was like, okay, it's super cold, it's snowing, it's icy, but it's this one section of the AT that I was on, it's 40 miles between one road and the next. There's a forestry road in the middle, but during the winter it's not plowed, nobody's there. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna put on every stitch of clothing I have, I'm gonna bundle up, I'm gonna get to this one shelter that's in the middle of this 40 miles, I'll stay the night there, and then I'm gonna hike out the next day to get to my car. I'm gonna hitchhike to get to, I'm gonna get to the road and then hitchhike back to my car. Um, done with this, none of this four day shit. Like that's not happening. I'm so cold and I'm stupid. Let's like, we'll just make this work. And so I'm hiking up uh, Glastonbury Mountain, which is a 4,000 foot mountain in the like driving snow. It's you know, two or three inches of snow on the ground. It's visibility is very poor. Ice is everywhere. I've been slipping and falling. Um, I've seen no one, no one else is on the trail. And I have my shoulders hunched up to my ears and like the wind is just in my face and I'm walking. And then there's a shadow, like a darkness in front of me. I'm like, who else is out here? Who else is silly enough to be out here today? And I look up and maybe, maybe like 20 or 30 feet in front of me on the trail, in the middle of the trail, there is a gigantic moose butt. The back end of a moose is just hanging out in the middle of the trail and it's 
swings its huge head around to look at me and starts snorting and snuffing and digging its paw into the ground because they're prey animals, but they're like a thousand pounds. And so if they get scared, they'll kick or trample. And I've worked with horses and the moose was just all wrong. It was just, the legs went on forever. They were little spindly things. The body was massive, but too long. And then the nose looked like somebody had kind of stretched it out. And it's just looking at me and snorting and batting its ears around and just digging into the dirt. And my instinct turned out to be correct, which was I froze and just didn't move and just muttered under my breath, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Eventually, it was probably maybe 10 or 15 seconds at max, but it felt like a few years. The moose snorted to itself, turned around, and trotted on up the trail. And I just about like fell over, my knees went all watery, and I had enough adrenaline to pretty much sprint to the shelter. Um, on my way, I like compared the hoof print of the moose and my hand, and no surprise, the hoof was about two or three inches wider on every side of my hand. Um, of course, after it started walking up the trail, I was like, I have snacks. You seem so sure-footed. Maybe we can make an alliance. I could ride you. Like, but yeah, so I got to, the, after that, you know, adventure with enough adrenaline to keep me running for quite a while, I got to the shelter right around sundown and set up my gear in the shelter. And uh, within an hour and a half of the sun going down at like 4.15, I was in my bedroll and trying to sleep because it was just so cold. My water bottles had frozen. I needed to use my stove to even get liquid water. And I forgot to put my, um, forgot to put my water filter in my sleeping bag with me. So it, uh, <laughs> it froze. And so the next morning, my boots had frozen into gigantic ice blocks. So I put my feet inside those at about, you know, 6.30 or 7 in the morning when the sun had finally come up and took my water, my water filter and shoved it down my shirt so it was sitting against my stomach so it could defrost and started hiking and hiked out for the road 22 miles away and I made it about half an hour before sundown and um, I stuck my thumb out and the first person to pass by pulled over and stopped for me um, it was this lovely older man, and he asked me where I was going, and I said, well, I'm trying to get to, you know, this nearby town, but, you know, I'm trying to go to this other town eventually. And he's like, oh, I actually live there. Like, where are you headed in, in that town? And I said, well, I'm going for the town offices. And he said, that's perfect. I live a quarter of a mile from there. That's where I'm headed. I won't get you there quick, but I'll get you there. Is that all right? I was like, that sounds perfect. And he ended up pulling in and stopping at a McDonald's on the way and was like, do you like coffee? And I was like, anything warm? I love coffee. And he gets me the biggest coffee they sell. And he takes me and drops me off after, you know, a 45-minute ride, telling me all about his family and his kids and his grandkids. And 
we get to the town offices and I get out of the car and I was like, oh, wait, I have something for you. And I get out some cash and I try to give it to him. And he's like, I won't take it. I will not take your money. Keep it. He's like, I'm not really religious, but I believe what goes around comes around and just pass it on. And that was my first experience hitchhiking on the AT. My first interaction with a moose. <laughs> my first winter backpacking experience. Um, and it was just, I don't know. There's something about coming face to face with possible death that just simplifies things. And I don't know. The woods has never got my gender wrong, even if people do. But anyway, thank you so much for making this zine, and I hope you enjoy my story. Thanks. Bye. I almost missed this piece, which, as an editor, is a terrible confession to make. I thought I saved it on my computer, but somehow didn't, and only listened to it quite late. But since then, I've listened to this piece many times. It's an exhilarating story, my kind of story, because there's a naivety that Aubrey possesses that is enticing. They are underprepared, or they feel like it, but they go ahead with their plans regardless. And in doing so, in pushing boundaries, they find themselves. There's danger in getting out of our comfort zone, but it's in those uncertainties that the best moments happen. Just like meeting a moose face to face in the middle of a deserted trail. In the next piece, we remain on the Appalachian Trail for a while before moving further afield into the mountains of the USA. It's an extract from the podcast Flex Your Heart Radio, hosted by Lacey. It's a podcast about positivity, fitness, feminism, recovery, taking risks and crushing at life. The section you're about to hear is from the episode calling Finding Home in the In-Between with Travis. We're showcasing six minutes of an hour-long episode, so you can imagine that there's a lot more than USA Mountains being discussed in the episode. But in the meantime, here are Lacey and Travis talking about the outdoors. How did you get into mountain sports specifically? Mountain sports. Um, so I grew up next to Acadia National Park. Mm -hmm. And as a family, we would go hiking every once in a while and everyone would scream and cry and, you know, to the point where my parents probably just stopped, you know. Um, I, so I don't even have, I have like one memory maybe of us camping and maybe one memory of us hiking. But at some point, my father got me the main Appalachian hiking guide, the main AMC guide. And there's a section on it for Acadia National Park. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided I wanted to hike every mountain in Acadia. Mm -hmm. And these mountains aren't very tall because it's on the ocean, but they're dramatic and beautiful. Have you ever been to Acadia? No. They're, it's basically like these exposed mountain cliffs that literally end at the ocean. That sounds perfect. In the Atlantic Ocean. So you just see the horizon. It's, <laughs> and then you see all these like little sailboats like everywhere. Yeah. It's amazingly gorgeous and beautiful. And um, I would spend a lot of time there just hiking. And I just, I just got it in my head that I just wanted to hike all of them. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much did. And, you know, every time I would hike something, I'd write the date and who I hiked it with and like. In your live journal. <laughs> in, well, in my live journal, but really in this book. And I still have this book, which is really cute. Um, and then um, I was a skateboarder. Mm -hmm. And at some point when snowboarding became enough of a thing, I think this was like 93. Yeah. I spent all my babysitting money and got myself a used snowboard. Mm -hmm. 
and became a snowboarder. Mm-hmm. And um, and so by the time I got to college, I was obsessed with snowboarding. Mm-hmm. So that and the like, I think I'm gay. I think I might be gay. Brought me to the school I went to, which was UMF. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I started snowboarding, it just I just became obsessed with that mountain in particular, which is Sugarloaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's where also where I started um, mountain biking because there's just mountain bike trails everywhere and just started doing lots of day hikes. And eventually I started backpacking and, um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of how I, it just all started with Acadia and just for some reason, um, I just feel pulled up mountains that there's like almost this like rope that just like pulls me up them. And mm-hmm. then I, and I never like had language for spirituality or anything like that. and wasn't raised religious, like, but I felt something on those mountains and I didn't know, I didn't have a language for it. I didn't know what I was feeling. I just know I felt something and I felt good and it didn't matter. Like, you know, all the sort of stress and harassment I would feel in my normal life. I felt different on a mountain. Mm-hmm. I like, I felt good. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to explain it, but there's just something, there's this draw. Will you tell us about your job? Yes. Um, so I work for the Venture Out Project, mm-hmm. um, which is a queer slash LGBTQ outdoor organization. We're a nonprofit and the founder uh, lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. I found out about the Venture Out Project, a.k.a. TVOP. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually already living in Portland, but I had just moved from Massachusetts six months prior. Mm-hmm. Somebody had posted something on my Facebook wall and I was like, who is this person running these trips in Massachusetts where I literally just moved from? Yeah. And so I wrote to him and we went through a, a series of like, you know, he checked my references and interviews and all this stuff. And he, cause I asked him if I could help him lead a trip. And, you know, after this sort of process, he was like, yes. And so we had never met in person before, but I flew out that August. So that was like in February, that August I flew out to help him and another instructor lead a trip. So there was three instructors and two participants. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. <laughs> and we spent a week on the trail and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And we are actually on the long trail, which I then later hiked uh, in Vermont. And then six months after that, um, he called me and I was actually in a horrible job at the time. Really? And I was, it was very stressful. It was financially horrible. Like I got paid pennies. So I was like kind of living off of a credit card Oof. and I'm like crying at night. And like, you know, that anxious feeling of like, I have to go to work the next day. Like mm. it just was horrible. And he, it was just like this weird universe thing. He called me and offered me a job mm-hmm. and like a full-time job. Like, yeah, I want you to be my full-time admin person. And I was like, Oh my God. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> You have no idea. Yeah. So I said yes. And it was under the understanding that I would do this job. This was in January. And that that fall I would move to, to Northampton mm. at the time. I'm in this partnership with the same partner I'm, I'm with. And, mm-hmm. you know, I talked to him about it and I'm like, I think maybe, you know, I'm 38 now and maybe it, that seems like one of those things that adults do, which is move to other sides of the country for jobs. Yeah. And then we just have a long distance relationship until maybe, maybe you'll move here too. You know, anyways, uh, September came when it was time for me to move. And I was like, I love this job. And I also really love my partner and I love Portland and I, I can't, 
I can't leave. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of like renegotiated. And wow. I was like, what if I started leading trips out here? Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened. So now we have trips in the Portland, Pacific Northwest area and mm-hmm. in New England, which mm-hmm. is great for both of us. And also he loves traveling out here. So we like lead trips out together out here. And I go back east a bunch, mm-hmm. which also allows me to be able to visit Maine a whole ton. Because mm-hmm. I can't go to New England and not go to Maine. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to visit my family a bunch. And some, like, I almost see them the same amount that when I lived in Boston. Even oh, though wow. I lived like four hours away. Like, I get to see them a lot, which is great because I love visiting home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And so now I'm the director of operations for mm-hmm. them. And it's awesome. I get to plan trips. I get to communicate with all the participants. Um, I basically just... You know, I do all the social media, mm-hmm. it's all the, everything admin related is me, plus the like, you know, recruitment and the participants. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really fun job. Well, thanks again to Travis from the Venture Out Project and to Lacey from Flex Your Heart Radio for allowing us to use this excerpt. You can find the whole interview and many others by searching for Flex Your Heart Radio wherever you find your podcasts or by visiting Lacey's website, which is laceyjdavis.com slash podcast. You can find out more about the fantastic work of the Venture Out Project at ventureoutproject.com and we'll put links in our show notes as well. Hi, I'm Ruth and I'm on a beautiful walk near Burwash and you're listening to Queer Out Here. Thanks, Ruth. Next is a piece produced by Erin Kian, a disabled queer transman with a zine creator and a spoken word performer. Described as poetry augmented with sound, his piece is an extract from his zine, Floodlight Viscera. Excerpt from Floodlight Viscera, number 12. Let's dip into some moments. The first is brunch in the sun. Sitting across from the man I love, we drink tea and point to passing dogs. We are at our favourite cafe, just a few doors down from our home. The food is rich and delicious. And as we chat about politics and art and community, I gaze at him and I think, every time, how glad I am for this to be my life. Beachside in the winter. Cold and windy and wet, we are alone with the shoreline. The ocean gulps and whispers, and even the gulls are quiet. Every breath drawn is cold and fresh, like crisp apples and morning dew. The world feels bigger here. The breadth and depth of the sea reminds us that we are nothing which is a relief when faced with burdens overwhelming. I find road trips therapeutic. It's easy to filter through your thoughts and feelings while gazing out the car window. Because there's nowhere for you to go to escape yourself. But you're not trapped, you're moving. The changing scenery helps lubricate your subconscious, gliding you through the maze of mind, 
until you can find peace and resolution. Ah, I love the way that body and place mingle in Aaron's piece, uh, and the way that he weaves field recordings around the poem to help immerse us in the moment. I can really feel the atmosphere of the cafe and the bite of the sea breeze and the car pulling out onto the long highway. As you can hear, Aaron is Australian, and he notes that this piece was written, recorded, and produced on the stolen land of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The creator pays respect to all elders, past, present, and emerging, and extends that respect to all Indigenous people who are listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. Australia always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Now that feeling of immersion continues in our next piece, which is something of an audio travel diary, a scrapbook or an art journal uh, of a trip that the producer, Anya, took to Kenya in 2010. Anya says that she likes to take her recorder and make binaural recordings of her trips as audio postcards. When listening back to them, she is transported right back to where she was at that time.
I love the immediacy of Anya's piece. I close my eyes and I'm transported to a different place. I can imagine myself meandering through the streets of an unknown city, moving through time and space. I can make of it what I want. I'm told it's set in Kenya by the title. Images are conjured up in my mind, but I'm sure they're wrong. And yet, not completely. I too am on this journey, and like any traveller, I will not notice the same details as traveller before me, after me, or even next to me. And I will definitely not take in the same details as locals do and miss. Because that's the power of being foreign. You see things differently. In the city, you visit attractions locals never go to, and in the countryside, you discover habits and customs foreign to your land. Sometimes what is normal, taken for granted, can become exceptional and a gift. And other things, well, they can just be weird. In the next piece, we have a look at the English countryside through the eyes of EZ or Easy. In her piece, Out with Frankie the Dog, she takes us on a walk on the outskirts of Burton in the UK and reflects on the differences between English and Bulgarian countryside. Hello. It's Ali. Um, and Adele and the dog Frankie having a walk in the countryside uh, near Burton up on Trent just before Christmas it's a really foggy day but beautiful the sun is trying to strike through the through the gust quite warm damp love English weather <laughs> I feel, feel calm and nice, content. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the dog just coughed. How's that countryside? How is the countryside different from Bulgarian countryside? Um, it's much more organised. Uh, more 
clean maybe in places. Um, our countryside is more wild, not accessible for humans maybe so much, which is good in a way. Um, but I think nature is nature, doesn't matter where you are. Well, I can see it's really, really big field, green and a fog and sunshine trying to strike through the through the fog. And I can hear people on the other side of the field. I guess there is a, a farm. Uh, what is Frankie doing? She's just searching for something. What's up? Oh my god! <laughs> is she alright? She's just running around like a mad dog. Yeah, I think she's a mad dog. Oh my god! <laughs> Do you think that she smelled some other duck we in the field? A friend of hers? Oh yeah, um, so there is this rule in English or British countryside that you need to clean the duck's poo. Oh, there is another duck there. Um, no, just fetch her so you have to clean it but you have to put it in a plastic bag but you're in the nature and then a lot of people leaving their plastic bags in the field with the poo so what's the point of that I mean to put a plastic bag and leave it in the field is that is that a good thing I think no. So it's it's not very logical. I think. Anyway, come on, Frankie. That's it from me. I hope everyone have a great Christmas celebrations and New Year's celebrations, and may the force be with you. And also with you. Now, don't get me started on dog poo, though. Anyway, I think uh, both of us enjoyed the casual everydayness of this piece. For a lot of people, going out to walk the dog is probably their main interaction with the outdoors. They go every day, whether it's sunny or foggy, hot, windy, raining, snowing, it just has to be done. Now, some people take these daily or weekly habits and rituals just a little bit further. Joe Impey, a producer at the BBC, has, over the last couple of years, and with some encouragement from her girlfriend, been discovering the great outdoors, mainly through walking, hiking, and outdoor swimming. And when I say outdoor swimming, I don't mean just any old outdoor pool, but the ponds on Hampstead Heath, in all kinds of weather, in all seasons.
Can I just look and record some sound of the rain? Can you describe like what happens when people get in when when it's covered with ice like that? The problem with, with ice is that you can't see where the edge of the ice is, if, even if there's clear water, because the water goes over the top of the ice flow and then makes it look like water. And particularly when you're in there, at the level of the water, you can't see the edge. And the edge can be incredibly sharp and can be extend several feet beyond what you can naturally see as ice. And it's incredibly sharp because it's sharp and you're, because your skin's very cold, you don't notice the fact that you get cut. And you've seen people with injuries? Yeah, yes, they come out of the water and they've, it's like paper cuts. And we spend a lot of time stopping them going near the edge of the ice. Um, and they think they're completely fine. Uh, and they come out of this horrible cut. So we have to be incredibly careful. It looks just like a kind of black depth, doesn't it? Yeah. Except when you we see the bubbles, see I guess. the bubbles moving under it, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, so it's actually very shallow. I mean, at the moment it's raining. Normally when it's raining, the, the ice would have melted already because it's warmed up that much. But this is quite thick ice, so it'll take a while for this to go. And the deeper the pond, the co it holds the cold longer. Yeah, Shallow which is why this warm. place freezes, I think, in a certain time. Yeah. It hasn't. It'll probably yeah. freeze quicker and lose heat faster, being shallow, but it'll also warm up faster. So it holds its temperature, having a depth. Yeah. Mm. The ducks were doing really good sliding, skating. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. <laughs> Plans don't always unfold as we want them to. Joe wanted to swim, but the weather decided otherwise, and I'm glad it did. The result is an almost accidental piece, a found story, like a found sound. And it paints a vivid picture, as if we are there too, watching the ice on the water. Hello, uh, my name is Sam. I live in Melbourne, Australia. Today I walked the city with my friend Hannah and even though it was a city we saw, I, I still think of it as, in many ways, the great outdoors for various reasons. And we walked the Yarra River, and I'm looking at my pedometer, and we walked 21,693 steps today. And you're listening to Queer Out Here. Thanks, Sam. In this piece, Jenny List, engineer and journalist, is out for a wander on New Year's Day. She addresses one of the central questions of this project, how being queer, in this case being trans, relates to being outdoors, or whether it does at all. Being trans doesn't mean that you will go walking, but Jenny points out that the hoops that trans people need to jump through, so in this case the requirement which is enforced by surgeons that trans people not be fat if they want to access certain transition-related surgical interventions, those hoops mean that some trans people have a very particular reason or motivation to be outside. Just do a quick level check. Yes, that looks that's looking good. Excellent. 
<laughs> well, I'm Jenny List. I'm uh, just walking along uh, a slightly muddy bridal path on New Year's Day. Uh, about where Buckinghamshire meets Oxfordshire, so I suspect that I started in uh, Oxfordshire, I'm now in Buckinghamshire, just letting myself through a gate. It's a slightly raw and cold day, uh, as January the 1st often is, it's very grey, but uh, I seem to have the place to myself. Uh, probably after lunch all the uh, groups of grumpy uh, Holiday families will be out uh, exposing their uh, familial rows after having been cooped up together at the uh, home of the matriarch for the last week. Uh, but for now, uh, blessedly empty. Just walking along a uh, very, very, very minor country lane uh, with uh, fields of... Uh, Winter wheat just uh, poking through the soil on either side of me. Uh, it's uh, interesting to ponder the whole queer out thing, queer out here thing, because uh, of course uh, I'm out here, I walk a lot, uh, but uh, am I especially queer by being out here? The answer is probably not. Uh, I've lived in this part of the world all my life and uh, before I came out of the closet as trans, I still walked around on New Year's Day in a pair of old wellies and a pair of old jeans and a jumper, just as I am at the moment. And uh, was I any more or less queer then? Uh, so, in a way, I'm not coming out here to be queer. But then again, there is a queer aspect to a lot of the walking I do. Uh, it's something that... Uh, it's a bit of a narrative surrounding transition that uh, people come out of the closet as trans. They uh, wait a little bit, but uh, end up going to the uh, gender clinic. Uh, some gender clinics have a much longer wait than others, but if they're private, they go straight into it. And 18 months, two years later, they have their surgery and that's it, they're done. But of course, uh, transition is not that simple. Uh, Many of the extreme fast trackers who do that kind of thing uh, then fall flat on their faces when they wake up after a few months and realise that the thing that's been their massive focus for the last two years is gone and there's a big void in their life that they haven't filled. They haven't done the required um, socialisation and all the other things. Uh, and. That narrative rather um, neglects the, the other side of the trans community, the people for whom transition isn't a speedy process. Uh, for me, I've, it's eight years since I went to see uh, my GP in the first instance. I've had a very slow journey through the system, partly because I tried to stay in there for my wife, it didn't work, and then I've had one or two medical ups and downs. Uh, but uh, along the way I've met quite a few of the very fast transitioners and also come to know a group of slow trainers, people for whom they've got stuck along the way. And most of them are stuck because they've got to the point where they're referred for surgery and they're too much, too, too, too overweight. They have to lose some, uh, some fat. And 
at that point you get into a very awkward kind of holding pattern. Uh, on one side you've got people fat shaming. Uh, I should say I'm not one of those people. My reasons for being held back are different. But there's a lot of sort of fat shaming. A lot of invisibility that uh, other people in the trans community don't really realise that uh, these people are stuck in the system. Uh, and there's a lot of real triggering uh, from people who've gone through very quickly and won't stop going on about it and don't realise that the person they're talking to has their own private turmoils with the length it's taking for them. So back to why that has relevance to being queer out here. Obviously one of the ways to lose weight is exercise. And I find that one or two of my walking partners are trans women who have some weight to lose um, and are slow trainers like me. And so it's very odd because we're not there to be queer out here, so to speak. But then again, one of the reasons we're doing so much exercise is related to our transitions. Uh, as I say, I'm the odd one out being very tall and lean, but uh, it's a common theme among the friends I go walking with that quite a few of them are in this situation. Uh, the, uh, the damp and wet January countryside doesn't judge you by uh, who you are, uh, what your body shape is, or um, where you've reached in your transition path. I do wish there were more members of the wider trans community who'd see it that way. Anyway, I'm just uh, walking up a slight hill with, uh, on my right, what looks like a field that had oilseed rape in it last year, because there's lots of little sprouts coming through. I think it's been left fallow over the winter though. Um, probably in about half an hour I'll come back in and uh, I will have very cold hands. Anyway, it's just my thoughts on the whole queer out here thing. Jenny's piece is a third piece that mentions the outdoors as a non-judgmental place. Nature doesn't judge people in any way, and I like that this is being reflected in the submissions. It's an open place where people don't have to hide. But at the same time, Jenny talks about the fact that the outdoors is not necessarily a choice. People can be there because they feel they have to in order to lose weight. And I wonder if this doesn't alter people's relations to the outdoors. The following piece continues on with the question of being queer out here. Not from the point of view of transitioning, but simply of encouraging queer people to explore the outdoors. The voices you are going to hear are from Ben, from Mountain Meister and Elise from Out There Adventures. It's an extract from the podcast Mountain Meister. What do you say to the people who say, well, you can't have a trip for only people who identify as queer and segregate them from the people who are straight? What's your response to that? Um, well, I mean, we have a history of doing it, you know, Outward Bound, the National Outdoor Leadership School. Those were those programs were all started serving white cisgendered males um maybe they'd throw a a young man of color in there every once in a while but you know those those programs were designed to help that particular group the boy scouts the girl scouts we we have a history of doing this all over the place um and no one raises that into question because those are all more dominant groups in society mm -hmm. um but i i think that 
for the same reasons that people felt those programs were important, um, we feel ours is important. Even in, arguably, I feel ours is even more important, right? Because you can't go out and get your needs met in the same way mm-hmm. um, as a queer person as you can if you are someone who has less marginalized identity. I spoke with uh, Jose Gonzalez from Latino Outdoors. And his response, because I asked him a similar question, what do you say to the people who say, well, what if we were to have an only white uh, outdoors community? And he was like, well, that's reality already. Yeah. That, that already yeah. exists. <laughs> it does. Yeah, absolutely. How uh, how do you get people who are who don't identify that way to, to really care? Because honestly, uh, I want to be completely honest, I see Get Involved, the Get Involved button on the website. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction is, why Why would I get involved with this? I can't really empathize. Yeah, I think that um, we're always trying to find a way to connect with people. You know, and we have a, our organization is interesting because it spans so many different um, genres of, of people and of giving and, and philanthropy. Um you know, we, if somebody grew up camping, you know, or they grew up fishing with their dad every summer, and that was, was this really formative experience for them, you know, we can kind of tap into that and we can say, we're, we're trying to provide a situation similar to the one that you were able to experience, you know, or, um, if folks are really interested in working with young people, um, and trying to help them become better leaders or more confident, you know, we're, we're able to offer up, um, reasons why, why we are able to do that as well, you know, and then, and then you have the other folks that are attuned to social justice work that's happening across the country. And and then we're able to, to represent that community as well, you know? So I think we do offer an interesting way for folks to be connected regardless of, of who you are, you know? And, um, so often I hear, I hear stories, and this has happened with more frequency as I've been um, working on on this organization. Um, but people are like, oh yeah, I have a gay niece, or my my sister is trans, or um, you know something like that. That it's pretty amazing to hear the increase in frequency um, with which people are engaging with the queer community in some way. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the interview, you said that. Uh, the queer community doesn't have a history of uh, engaging in the outdoors. Uh, mm-hmm. Why not? Um, well, I think a couple different reasons. You know, all of the formative milestones or the big milestones for the queer community, if you look back in this country, um, all those big things have happened in cities. You know, the Stonewall riots happened in New York. Um, Daughters of Belitis, Mattachine Society, these organizations that started as underground um, gay and lesbian groups started in San Francisco or New York. And we, even now, people tend to move from rural areas to urban areas. You know, I did that. I grew up in a town of 2,000 people um, and went to college in Madison and then moved a few years later to an even bigger city um, because you just find a higher diversity of folks and, and more resources, you know? Um, but when you move to those cities, the things that people often engage with are bar cultures, um, you know, coffee shops, things like that, that connection to nature just, just isn't there. Um, you know, and I feel like the narrative for a queer person is that you, you wait till you turn 18 
And then when you're 18, you try to get a fake ID so you can sneak into the bars. Um, and that's that's pretty much it. That's you know? not and just you, specific to the queer community, I don't think, is it? No, no, it's definitely not. Okay. Um, but those are that's that's what I remember being uh-huh. most excited about because that was the only way that I could connect with my community. I knew, you know, there's one major gay bar in Madison, and I knew if I wanted to try to meet people who I identified with on this level, that I had to go there. I didn't know where else to go, you know. Um, and in in places like Seattle, you're seeing an expansion of of resources, which is fantastic. You know, there's different groups that do different things, and there's um, they're meeting every other week in a space that isn't at a bar um, and talking about healthy lifestyles and all sorts of things, and that's fantastic. And and we're just trying to contribute to that. But I, I think it it is the unfortunate reality that 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 narrative is still the truth for a lot of folks. Thanks again to Ben from Mountain Meister Podcast and Elise from Out There Adventures for giving us permission to use this extract. You can find the full interview, Mountain Meister episode 172 on mountainmeister.com. And for more about Out There Adventures and their amazing trips for queer youth, visit outthereadventures.org. Again, the links will be in the show notes. It's interesting to hear how Elise's experience of connecting to queer community as a young person was based around bars and cities, and how one of the reasons she runs Out There Adventures is to offer an alternative, a way for queer youth to engage with the natural world. I'm sure that some listeners will have had a similar coming-of-age experience. When I was talking to Elise about using this excerpt, however, she noted that saying queer people in the USA don't have a history of engaging with the outdoors is incomplete and incorrect in that it centres white mainstream colonialist cultures and erases other people's experiences and histories. This is a really important point and it's relevant to this issue of Queer Out Here because while we're really excited by the diversity of the pieces we've received and while our contributors identify all over the queer spectrum, we also know that the majority of our contributors are white. And this means that we are, and you, as listeners, are missing out on the perspectives of queer people of colour, indigenous people, people from quote-unquote non-Western countries all over the world. So if that is you, we would love to hear from you for future issues. And as with everybody, your contribution doesn't have to focus on identity, it just needs to be outdoors-themed. So check our website, queerouthere.com, for submission guidelines, deadlines, and the submission form. We're sticking to the USA in our next piece, We've Won the Winter, by Liz, or Ulysses, Tetu. Liz is a gag comic artist and writer, and he is studying a creative sexual communication major at Metropolitan State University. We've Won the Winter blends poetic prose with creative non-fiction to describe the development of a sensual sexual relationship between two young bi men, a relationship tied to the woods behind their local apartment building a relationship that adapts and changes as one partner develops ulcerative colitis. Two bi-boys walk to their local library, double time because they're 17. On the way back, they bump into each other in the lush rush of forest behind the apartment building between their places, fondling each other next to a bruised blonde pond. Back there, the breeze barks like a person pointing them out, and the boys back off often before fumbling into each other's arms again. The shorter boy will remember the way his body bites into the ruddy brown bark of the ash tree. Especially his ass. His boyfriend has big arms, but even those become weary hauling up the bear in training to nibble at his big bear neck. 
The sun orb dips below the natural pool long before they check their phones, one's parents promising to pick them up, the other rushing to the bus so they won't be busted. That's how the love-bitten summer ends. While weaving their way to graduation, one's intestines begin to wear at themselves. And when they tear in college, he won't walk just anywhere anymore, not without a bathroom somewhere near. He watches the public restroom with a worn look, so far away from his nature, which is where his friend who barely sees the leaves quiver is, he's weeping so completely for what he has lost. When an illness of weeks winds its way to years, neither will remember a time where they would walk with one another without wayward sighs. Five big ones it whittles away at the big man, the bitter bear in the frozen passenger seat of a minivan, beaten briefly thinking about it as they breeze by farms whisked in winter smutty white. Minnesota midnight, he slides in and out of the fast lane of his dreams. His boyfriend bumps his elbow below his ribs to wake him, slobbering kisses to his forehead leaving chilled skin wet. Gray eyes will themselves awake to the delight of the guy relying on them. Before the men, the woods of their memories dipped in ice sheets and snow. The place from six years ago. In the steel bodies stalled, a race is proposed, snogging the prize. The cub assures he just did it, zooms straight from the vehicle and back again. But he never does anything straight, he chuckles, succumbing to the suction of saving grace lips, who stopped here for sentimentality. The night snow reflected on his sick white skin glows brighter in his mind's eye than weak flames for the ghost of a time that was. Between huffs, his brain wakes up enough to know that they'll have to go home soon for his sweet stomach's safety. But into hot kisses that sweep up his jaw and chin, he feels what's living in his skin will last forever. Soft tongue and smile, they start to slide into the robust spring of their relationship. Amongst the warm and winter woods, he's a winner. It took me a while to relax into this piece, but with each listening, it grew on me. So if, like me, you struggled upon first listening, persist. It's worth it. The narration weaves in and out of a shared safe place, the woods, and I love how this place stands out. It's a secret, it's hidden and thrilling. It's also a place that holds memories of better times, but ultimately, it's a place different from the rest of everyday life, a cocoon where you can lay aside pains and difficulty and find comfort and love. Hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm Peter. I'm Dan. And we are the Drielandepunt in Vals. And we are now in Germany, and now in the Netherlands, and now in Belgium. And you're listening to Queer Out Here. Thanks to uh, Dan and Peter for recording that sweeper with me. Next, we have two poems from Belinda Rule, who is a Melbourne writer of poetry and fiction. Her work has appeared extensively in journals and anthologies, and the two poems she reads here have previously been published in print, Highway Shepparton in Eureka Street and Rooms in Foam E. The poems describe the ways in which place and relationships and memory are intertwined. I'll let Belinda introduce them. Two poems from Belinda Rule. Like many queer people, I'm estranged from a large part of my family. We were a camping and travelling family, and I have quite a passionate relationship with the places we used to go. 
but the memory of family is intertwined with the memory of place so that even when I'm literally standing in the beloved place, I still feel that I am in exile. And that's what these poems are about. Highway, Shepparton. Did you know the other day I drove that northern road again? Who knew you could assail the country of childhood so simply? Just get in the car and go. But this country was not our country. The road I sought, long, straight and pale, lay beneath another road, across a membrane I could not pierce. Still the ragged lady gums danced their set across the river bridge. But the drought had lifted. The hearts of the horsetail grass were green, the paddock's chartreuse, nubbled velvet strewn with what I took to be litter, but later saw was a voluminous cast of white cockatoos, gorging on plenty. But of course you don't know. You are not here to tell. The membrane is thickening, and that country is drifting away. There is no one here with me to watch it go. Rooms. All night and day it rains, till at dusk I lift a window for the air, and my lost brother is outside, slick with rain, disdaining the bamboo pergola in his wild way, leaper into deep pools, eater of unnecessary chilies. How handsome he is. How well age wears his face. He does not see me. Now all the empty rooms of the holiday house are full of my lost family. How did I not see they were here? I can hear the children I've never met bouncing on the candle-wicked beds beside their lost parents. They shriek like whipbirds. On a dry patch of deck, my lost mother and the man recline with wine, tanned, loose, happy. She slides the fly wire, mind on dinner, and her eye slips right through me. Belinda's poem makes me sad. It's not how I like to think of the outdoors, as a space filled with memories that hurt. They are not bad memories by themselves, but they can't be shared anymore. They've become estranged, stranded somehow in the landscape. They exist in a vacuum of the past, never to be shared again, cherished and listened to for the hundredth time. Those privileges are gone, and the places that hold them become a reminder of that loss. But memories don't have to be like that. You can go to other places and create new ones. You can even close your eyes and fabricate new memories, which is what I did in the piece you're about to hear now. It's called My Seasides, and presents to you how I like to think of a certain kind of seaside. My Seaside When I think of the seaside, first there is the sea, and the big, all-encompassing waves. <sighs>
Then I get closer to the water's edge and details begin to appear. Splash, splash, I don't often think of the sand I walk on, its wet surface absorbing my steps. But every so often, the wind picks up and makes it sing. All in all, it's a pretty noisy place. Until... I dive in. It's not silent, but the sounds are softer, clearer. Splash. Splash. And every now and again, when I'm at the right place, at the right time, I hear an unexpected sound. A sound not made for human ears. The seaside. What does it sound like for you? A gorgeous piece and a great question. And we happen to have a short piece that answers it. Mags made this recording on the beach at Bexhill after a stressful day. She writes, I find the sound of the sea crashing onto the beach and the ebb and flow of the tide have the innate ability to create a sense of calm within me. At times I closed my eyes and just engaged with the sound of the sea and the wind. I left some time later, feeling a sense of calm had washed over me.
I'm familiar with the beach at Bexhill, so when I hear this piece, I imagine the waves dragging on the shingle, the wind leaping and tumbling over the thick wooden walls that hold the beach in place against the longshore drift. But I also hear, or I imagine I can hear, breathing. Is it Mags breathing the wind? Is it the sea breathing the beach? Who is breathing what here? This last piece features Wendy, a second-generation Holocaust survivor who lives by the sea on the south coast. She, like Johnson, is a member of the Hastings and Rother Rainbow Alliance working group. Wendy was keen to contribute to queer art here, but wasn't sure about creating a piece herself. So she asked if Jonathan could record a chat while on one of their group walks, and if he could edit it for the zine. Here we are. <laughs> We're all here. Are we doing a, a group photo? Is this group yeah. photo? Yeah. I always want to have group photos to send to Karen and Sloan so they really, really Jealous. upset them. <laughs> now don't fall in. Don't step back, don't step back. Any short asses need to come up here? Any short asses need elevating? Any short asses need elevating? Oh, just us. Just us. <laughs> My name's Wendy and I belong to the Hastings and Rother Rainbow Alliance and once a month for the last four or five years we've been having a group walk which is absolutely fantastic because you can chat so nicely when you're walking outside, you go to lovely places, you meet friends and then we go to a pub and have a nice lunch. So I can't think of anything I'd rather do more yeah. on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. It goes into Rye Harbour, yeah. which is before Rye. We're at Canberra Sands, um, and this is a walk I've done. This is probably the third time I've done this walk. You could have a chain link ferry. Yeah, yeah. Like at uh, Cows across the Medina. How about a zip wire? Yeah. <laughs> zip wire would be great, wouldn't <laughs> it? Yeah. That would be less intrusive. Or a cable car. I was in it right from the word go. I can remember the first walk we led, and that was on Furl Beacon and back down, coming back down on the coach road, yeah. back to Furl, mm -hmm. and we went to a pub in Furl to eat. I like to use the sticks because I feel it gives my upper body a good workout as well. Mm -hmm. And we bought the sticks uh, when I was 54, I bought them. So how old are they now? 54, 56, They're 14 years old. And I bought them, and Chris bought them, because we were going to do six months around South America. And part of our trip was the Machu Picchu Trail. It was gruelling, very gruelling. Um, but fantastic, as you can imagine. 
And on my 55th birthday, I did Dead Woman's Pass, which is the, the most difficult day. And Chris and I did quite well. We got up really early, so we didn't keep everyone waiting. Because most people on that trip were in their 30s. Some were in their 20s. And there were only, like, I think five of us in our 50s. And there were 35 people. So we didn't want to be the old fuddy-duddies who kept everyone waiting. <laughs> we were about middle of the group. Yeah. fast fitness went but I had a very bad knee at the time um, I, since, since then I've had a knee replacement and I'm fighting fit now yeah. I had retired basically when I was 50 for early retirement Chris worked till she was 55 um, as a nurse and then I wanted our first holiday to be something really fantastic that we could never have done while we were working so we looked and, and the, I'd never been to South America so just she'd never been to South America and we we tacked on a week in the Galapagos on the end of it wow <laughs> we were in that area yeah so thus began our our traveling days When we were training for that matchy pitchy thing, we walked and walked and walked all over the place. And when we got back, we set ourselves the task and we did it in a week. We walked around the perimeter of the Isle of Wight. We did between 16 and 21 miles every day. And that was when I had my bad knees. We've experienced great friendliness to us as a couple of older women, you know. And mm -hmm. um, we have never made it explicit that we were a couple, but I think people would have to be blind not to see it. I mean, we don't go around holding hands or kissing. I think I'm quite an independent person, and so is Chris, pretty independent. Um, we do share our affection for each other in lots of ways, but also, I think, I don't know if it's homophobia in my own makeup, but I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable um, by, by them experiencing something that they don't think they're going to see. So, when I'm with gay friends, when I'm with gay friends, Chris and I will put our arms around each other. And, but in the, just the general, like when we do these walks or anything, I suppose I could put my arm around her and that wouldn't shock anybody. But we just tend to talk to different people. You think, oh, who do I fancy chatting to? It's who you end up being next to, isn't it? I've loved some of the people I've talked to on this group. 
and you get chatting to people, you get to know their stories from these walks, you know. My mum always said to me, not long to go now, Wendy, pull up your socks. And she said I always used to kneel down and pull my socks off. <laughs> so did you like walking when you were my, a kid? No, I hated it, but my parents were very keen walkers. Extremely keen. And on a Sunday they'd always take us out walking. <laughs> and I mean, I, I would look forward to it as an outing. But sort of halfway through, I'd start moaning and not wanting to do it and wanting to be carried and getting slower and slower. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it might have been too much for me, I don't know. Perhaps I was just lazy. I don't know what it was. When did you start liking walking? Um, um, I would say... Probably in my mid twenties. What about you? Same. Same. Yeah. I also like swimming. I mainly swim in pools, and I mainly do lengths, which mm -hmm. is very boring. But I have swum in lakes, <laughs> and I. I do sometimes swim in the sea because I only live like four minutes walk from the sea. So if it's a nice hot day in the summer, I will go down to the sea. So I said to Chris, I'm going to put my costume on, I'm going to rush down to the sea, I'm going to throw myself in. When I got down there, you could see about two miles out to sea, low tide. You could see this bloke just up to his knees, like two miles away. So, luck's not with me. I went back and had a cold shower. How have you enjoyed the walk today? Oh, I loved it. I've loved every bit of it, and I hope this this recording we've done is going to be useful for the fanzine. Audio zine. Audio zine. <laughs> I am. A, it is a fan. It's a fan of queer people doing stuff outside, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I think queer people do stuff outside very well. Hi there, my name's Emma. I'm on top of the Cam Longdown Ridge in the beautiful Cotswolds and I'm queer out here. Thanks Emma. And that's the last of our pieces. Thanks again to all of our contributors for sharing their pieces with us. You can find more about everyone in the show notes for this issue available on our website, queerouthere.com. And thanks to you for listening right through to the end. We hope you found something in here that delighted or inspired you. And if there was something that you wanted to respond to or a piece that got you thinking, please do consider submitting something to our next issue. 
Submissions for issue two will open in May 2018 and will close at the start of September. So get thinking about ways you could take our ears adventuring. In the meantime, please let us know what you thought of the zine. On Twitter, we're at Queer Out Here, and on Facebook, we're the same. You could leave a review on iTunes too. That's what all the podcasters say, so there must be a reason they want you to do it, so go do it! But most of all, if you did like this issue, please forward it on to somebody else who might enjoy it too. And that's it. So from me, Jonathan. And me, Alice. Goodbye. Goodbye.